reading uh, comes from Luke chapter 12, verse 13 to 21. Now, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I shall do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for yourself. For many years, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning, everyone. Uh, if we've not met, my name's Nathan. Uh, I want to welcome you here. I'm one of the pastors. As Darren mentioned earlier, we are doing an eight-week series in stewardship. Uh, so we're thinking about what to do with what God has given us. Uh, week one, we looked at time. Uh, last week, Sam gave us kind of like a, a big sort of biblical theology, whole Bible view of wealth and possessions. Uh, this morning, we're going to kind of get our noses into this passage from Luke chapter 12, the parable of the rich fool. Luke is a first century doctor and historian, and the whole reason why he's writing this gospel is it's so that we might have certainty about who Jesus is and the great salvation, the great eternal life that he's come to give us. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive in. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We pray that you would sanctify us now in the truth. Your word is truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, a couple of years ago, I did some labouring work for a, a building company uh, in Melbourne that specialised in high-end, uh, architecturally designed residential properties, which just means that they built or renovated uh, really expensive homes in some of the richest suburbs in Melbourne. Uh, back in 2021, there was an earthquake in Melbourne, and uh, it, it damaged one of the homes that they built. So it resulted in a, the ceiling of the theatre room of one of the homes that they built in Turak, uh, developing a, a leak. Turak is literally the richest suburb in Melbourne, and they sent me over uh, to try and at least figure it, not fix it, I was useless on the tools, um, but they, they sent me over to try and figure out uh, where the leak was coming from, and I arrived at the house, and the place was amazing. Uh, the bottom floor alone had an underground car park that would have been big enough to fit, I don't know, maybe 10, 12, maybe more cars. Uh, it had an underground gym, uh, a, a large room that was uh, intended to be a games room. Uh, it had a theatre room where the leak was that must have been uh, two, three times bigger than my lounge room. And it literally had uh, an internal elevator uh, so you could get from the bottom floors, or the, the basement and the bottom floors, to the upper levels. 
So there, anyway, there I am in the, um, the theatre room trying to figure out where this leak is coming from, and the owner walked in, we get to talking. Uh, she tells me about her, her kids, she had two kids, one, uh, uh, two boys, one's in his uh, late teens, the other's in his early 20s, her uh, husband wasn't home, he was, a, I think, a, a surgeon in one of Melbourne's uh, leading hospitals, and she asked me about my family, and so I told her about Narelle, uh, said that we have five kids, and then she, then she said, um, so picture this, we're standing in this theatre, um, most, like, predominantly the back wall is glass, um, so you could look out literally, it looked out literally, into, kind of like a fish tank, it looked out literally into the water of the swimming pool, I don't know why you'd be in a theatre and want to look at the um, people swimming, but anyway, it was you could kind of like SeaWorld, you could look at the polar bears, where you could look, watch people like swimming in the, in the swimming pool in the th from the theatre. So I tell her, we have five kids, and she says, uh, without a hint of humour in her voice, she, she said to me that my husband and I would have liked to have had more children, but we just couldn't afford them. I, I actually, I, I had trouble not laughing. Like, I thought, goodness, you wouldn't want to come out to the eastern suburbs of Melbourne where I live. You might think I'm running something akin to a child's sweatshop. I mean, we have, um, you know, multiple kids in each of the bedrooms and our, you know, theatre room is literally our lounge room, which is uncomfortably close to the toilet. <laughs> How could she not hear as we stood in her, I don't know, it must have been close to $10 million sort of Turak mini-mansion, how could she not hear how silly she sounded? How could she not see how out of touch with reality she seemed, at least to one uh, labourer from the eastern suburbs of Melbourne? See, one of the, one of the things the Bible is continually trying to, to press upon us is that we actually don't see ourselves as clearly as we think. And that, I think, raises the question, how do we know that the difference between her and us isn't just one of degree rather than kind? I want to play a game with you. Uh, many of you will know the game, Who Am I?, from the wrapper of your last um, uh, fan tale. Uh, or if you're a bit older like me, you might remember it from the 90s game show, Sale of the Century. I want to play a game, not of who am I, but of what am I? So I'm not talking about a person, I'm talking about something else. So play along, don't call out the answer, I'm going to give you some clues, I want you to figure out what it is that I'm referring to. So what am I? I was originally started in the US in the 1960s and came to Australia in the 1970s. According to a recent IBIS or business report, my annual value is approximately $1.5 billion, though experts say I have something like $5 billion of untapped potential. There are over 2,200 of me spread across Australia. Combined, I'm approximately 3.5 million square metres in size, which is about 175 times bigger than the MCG. I charge you money to keep things that you own, but often don't use or need. If you want a quote, just call Kennards, Wilsons or Spacer. What am I? I am the Australian self-storage industry. Now, just park that for a moment, I want to talk to you about another industry, the Australian housing industry. Over the past 70 years, 
the average Australian home has gone from being 100 square metres in size to 240 square metres in size. So it's more than doubled in 70 years. Our homes now are on average bigger than the homes in US and Canada. We, in fact, our homes now are on average the largest homes in the world. But here's the thing, over that same period of time, the number of people living in our homes has actually declined. So in, 1950s, in the 1950s, the average number of people living in each home was around 3.5. Today, the average number of people living in each home is about 2.6. So in the 1950s, the average floor area per person was around 30 square metres. Today, it's nearly 87 square metres, which is nearly three times bigger. One of the best novelists from the 20th century, David Foster Wallace, once told a story or a parable, you might have heard it, it's two fish swimming along one day in the ocean and one day uh, as they're swimming along, the, an older fish swims by them and he says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish keep swimming on and then eventually one of the young fish turns to the other and says, what the heck is water? And the point of the, the story or the parable, Wallace says, is to point out that sometimes the most obvious realities are the ones that we miss, we find the hardest to see. We need to be aware of the water, the air, the culture we're living in. So let me point out the air that we're breathing, the water that we're all swimming in, the culture that we're living in. Over the past 70 years, our homes have more than doubled in size and are now on average the biggest in the world, but the average number of people living in our homes is declining. And while that's gone on, a $1.5 billion storage industry has been birthed because we have so much stuff that we feel like we need additional space to store it. I read recently that during the days of the Iron Curtain, when the Soviet Union you know, sealed off areas from uh, non-communist countries, uh, the one Romanian pastor said at the time, uh, persecuted pastor, he said, that from his experience, 95% uh, of Christians who, who face the test of persecution pass the test. But 95% of Christians who face the trial, the test of prosperity, fail it. Now, I'm not, you know, of course, that's just one man's experience. You know, from a global perspective, um, I'm, I'm guessing most of us in this room would be considered prosperous. I'm not suggesting that 95% of us are failing the test, but I think it is interesting just given there's so much talk at the moment about how much more difficult we're anticipating it being uh, or, or becoming to be a Christian here in Australia, given all of the cultural changes, uh, all the gender stuff. It is interesting just to stop and think for a moment about which... Of which of these two things does the Bible say is more challenging, uh, more of a trial and a test to our faith? Is it persecution or is it prosperity? The fact is, we are experiencing the best standards of living in history. And yet, at the same time, our culture has this insatiable desire for more. A friend of mine worked as a missionary in the Middle East for about 10 years. And he said to me once, I'll never forget, he said to me once, that one of the things that Western missionaries found hard about going and working in the area that he was in was just the acceptance in some pockets of the culture of deception. 
So he was a, uh, a taught at a Bible college, so he was literally training pastors, and he had, he had students cheat on tests. And he, he thought, how, when the Bible is so clear on this, can Christians kind of get caught up in it, in essence, mimic the culture? But then a godly Middle Eastern Christian said to him one day that, you realise when, when we go to the West, that's how we feel about materialism and greed. How, when the Bible is so clear on this can so many professing Christians get caught up in it in essence mimic the culture Tim Keller points out that the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way the pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body a pagan gave nobody their money and practically everybody their body and then Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and they gave practically everybody their money I want you to keep that in mind as we look now at these verses from Luke chapter 12. Now, all of the Bible, of course, is God's inspired word. It's all breathed out and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, training in righteousness. Uh, Jesus says we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But there can be, I think, passages that are particularly pertinent to a time and a culture. I don't think I chose this Um, passage and part of this series but I I do think though this passage is one of them so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of walk our way through this passage I want us to think about and think about the uh, the warning Jesus gives us against greed Uh, we'll look at the parable of the rich fool or I think better the greedy fool and then I'll give you four implications at the end in light of our series on stewardship to help us think about what to do with the things that God has given us. Make sense? All right, let's go. Let's work our way through. So if you haven't got a Bible, you'll need a Bible. So um, there are Bibles in the back of the room. We just kind of have our noses in this passage all the way through the sermon. So you'll be helped if you have a Bible open in front of you. Uh, If you look up at the, the start of chapter 12, we're told that thousands of people were gathering to Jesus. So verse 1, literally, they were trampling one another. And notice that Jesus... Uh, begins to teach not the crowd first, but the disciples first, and warning them of the dangers of hypocrisy. Now, here's the thing. He has in mind a particular form of hypocrisy. So if you look at the end of chapter 11, um, we're told, Luke Luke's just told us that the religious leaders of the day have now kind of resolved to, 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 to kill Jesus. And Jesus thinks, well, that's going to mean that come my departure through death, resurrection, and ascension, the hostility of this, the, these people are now going to be directed toward the disciples. And that's going to lead them to, to be tempted to lead a kind of double life, to be two-faced, which is the essence of, of hypocrisy, to kind of be, wear masks, to, to downplay their allegiance to him in certain contexts. And so Jesus, notice, intermingles a bunch of warnings and promises to help them to be faithful when that day comes so look at chapter 4 verse chapter 12 rather verse 4 warning i tell you my friends do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do but i will warn you whom to fear fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell yes i tell you fear him verse 6 promise are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before god Well, even the hairs of all your head are numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Verse 8, promise. 
And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before man, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge before the angels of God. Verse 9, warning. But the one who denies me before man will be denied before the angels of God. Verse 11, promise. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And now chapter 12, verse 13, our passage, a guy from the crowd steps forward and he says to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. The whole time he's been thinking about money. We're not told much about this guy. We know he's a man, verse 14, he has a brother, verse 13, and they're having some kind of dispute about their inheritance. Presumably, he sees in Jesus one with the wisdom and authority to sort the issue out. The Old Testament law uh, gave guidance, it spoke to the issue of how inheritances were to be distributed, and so in the first century, if there was a dispute, it was common to call on a rabbi to settle the dispute. But notice that Jesus doesn't actually get caught up in the, the legalities of the dispute. Verse 14, man who made me a judge or arbitrator over you. See, we're not told, notice very carefully, whether the guy has a legal right to the inheritance and Jesus doesn't go there. And I think that's because Jesus understands that legal rights and heart motivations are not the same thing. So you can have a legal right to something and yet not be driven to get the thing out of a sense of right or wrong, out of what glorifies God, but you can be motivated and driven to get the thing, and you'll know this if you've had, you know, inheritance disputes, you can be driven, motivated to get the thing primarily by greed, and that's what Jesus, that's what Jesus confronts. So look at verse 15, Jesus said to them, so notice the change, he's gone from speaking directly to him, Now, he's using this as an example to teach the crowd. He said to them, verse 15, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, literally greed. For, here's the reason, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's the assumption, isn't it, of the greedy person? That your life, my life, does in fact consist in the abundance of our possessions. And companies, uh, marketing teams, sorry to all the marketers in the room, but they know this, they understand this. So you go to, to Bunnings or Ikea or Westfield Coomer or, or up to the Hyperdome or down to the Harbour Town outlets and you're being told in hundreds of ways, some obvious, others less obvious, that your life consists in the abundance of your possessions. You turn on your TV, ad after ad, show after show is whispering to you, or if you're Frank Walker from National Tiles, it's kind of yelling at you, life consists in the abundance of your possessions. A few years ago, a Sydney Anglican guy named Tony Payne wrote a great little article, and in the article, he he fantasises Uh, about what it would look like or what would happen if all of the the leading TV execs in Australia, by a kind of miraculous outpouring of God's grace, were converted to Christianity and henceforth, from that time on, only ever aired TV shows and ads that reflected genuine Christian principles. What would become of of our televisions? So so imagine what would be left on Netflix, 
or Amazon Prime or Disney or Stan. Um, imagine free to air, you'd, you'd never have to sit through another advertisement of married at first sight, praise God. Never have to watch another, you know, bachelor cry his little eyes out because he's dated a thousand different women at one time and now his heart's all confused. <laughs> what would happen to our lifestyle shows? Tony Payne says this. In this short-lived expression of genuine Christian television, I would particularly look forward to the new version of Better Homes and Gardens. It would become a five-minute program called Perfectly Adequate Homes and Gardens. Each week, a former bricklayer or plumber would take us on a tour of a bog-ordinary family home and say, as you can see, the Wilson family home has plenty of potential. There's lots we could do with this one. However, it does the job pretty well. It's warm and dry and comfortable, no obvious structural problems. We're going to encourage the Wilsons to be content and leave it as it is. <laughs> Cut to the closing credits. See, think about it, it does not matter where you look. You can be in a shopping centre or on social media or in front of the television. Materialism is everywhere. See, materialism basically says that the material world is all there is, it's all that really matters and that life is all about stuff. So think about that. If that's true, if the material world is all that there is or all that really matters and that life is all about stuff, an implication of that is that you would want to accumulate more things, more stuff, so that you could experience fullness of life. Therefore, you would not, we, we would all have a vested interest in wanting to keep our, whatever faith we have separate from our finances. We wouldn't want to connect the two. We wouldn't want to have to give our money away. We'd rather keep our money so be able to purchase more things and, as a result, experience fullness of life. It's not surprising then that according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, the average Aussie household at the start of the 21st century was recorded as giving on average $267 a year. So that's households. It's not individuals. And it actually includes all charitable giving. Um, John Dixon points out, you know, figures like that can be numbing. Uh, so, so, so he compares our charitable giving at the start of the 21st century with what we spend on other things. We spend more on our pets. We spend twice as much on confectionery. We spend four times as much on grog, on beer and wine. We spend 10 times or nearly 10 times as much on eating out, on ourselves, on restaurants, cafes and takeaway meals. Take care, Jesus says, and be on your guard against all covetousness. Because one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I've been a Christian now for just over 20 years. Uh, 13 of those years I've been in pastoral ministry. And over the years I've had people talk to me about all kinds of things, confess all kinds of things. Uh, adultery, prostitution, Problems with gambling, alcohol, drugs, pornography, anger, gossip, lust, pride, impatience, fear of man, the list goes on and on. I don't think, apart from maybe passing comment, I don't think I've ever had anyone come to me seriously and say, I think I have a problem with greed. 
Tim Keller points out that greed's one of those sins that you can actually get caught up in and, and yet have no idea that you're caught up in it. See, other sins aren't like that. You know, he says, like, think about adultery. You can't say, honey, honestly, I thought it was you. It doesn't work. Murder's not like that. You can't say, I had no idea I was murdering you right now. But you can be guilty of greed and yet be genuinely unaware of it. Hence, Jesus says, take care. The sense is you need to have a continual, intentional mindset that guards your life against this thing because it is so pervasive and can be imperceptible. And so notice Jesus, verse 16, told them a parable. And the parable really is pretty straightforward in its details. There's a, a rich man, his land produces a bumper crop, so crypto booms, the stock market rises, you know, business goes gangbusters. He doesn't have the space to store it, which is a real problem. Think about it, he's not going to leave the crops to rot on the ground. It could take time to distribute it to others. So he thinks, what will I do? Well, I'll, I'll create space. I'll tear down my barns, I'll build large ones. That seems wise enough. And with his financial future secure, he now thinks it's time to relax. You know, maybe move to the Gold Coast. Eat, drink, and be merry. What's the problem? Three observations. Number one. Notice that the man thinks and speaks only with reference to himself. Do you notice that? Verse 17, he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Verse 18, I will do this. I will tear down my barns. I will store all my grains and my goods. Verse 19, I will say to my soul, when it comes to his wealth and possessions, the man is a practical atheist. He does not talk to God or include God in his thinking and planning about money. Friend, if you want to be a greedy fool, the first thing to do is to stop talking to God about money and possessions. Observation number two. With God out of the picture, notice that the man sees himself not as a steward, but as the primary owner of everything that he has. Did you notice that? Notice it's, it's my crops, my barns, my grain, my goods, my soul. See, he sees his life, his stuff rather, including his life as his. He has lost sight of the fact that his crops, his barns, his grain, his goods, even his soul have been entrusted to him by God who owns everything and it is to be used to advance God's purposes in the world, not his own. Sam read some passages last week which speak to the, uh, the ownership of God uh, or God's ownership of, of everything. He, he, he's some, uh, I don't know if you read these last week, but... Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Psalm 50, verse 9, God says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle's on, cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and, and the insect in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. 1 Chronicles 29, 11, 
Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. See, don't misunderstand. At one level, it makes perfect sense in everyday conversations to talk about my house and my car and my bank account and my possessions and so on. But part of the warning of the parable is to not let that slide into thinking that we actually own anything. Narelle and I have never owned a home. I'm not saying that is a morally superior um, decision or, or choice. I'm not saying that renting is superior to owning. In fact, in many ways, we would, we would like to have owned a home. Um, but we've just made decisions and prioritised other things which have meant that we've not been able to buy a home. We've always had, by God's grace, great landlords. But it actually doesn't matter how great your landlord is, you never feel free to independently tear down walls and repurpose the joint for your own kind of purposes. You don't never feel free. But part of renting is realising that you have the responsibility to only use the house in the ways that the owners would want. The danger for Narelle and me is that we actually do think, I think, that there are a whole bunch of things that we think are ours. In large part, the reason the man accumulates so much wealth and is so self-centered in how he distributes it or doesn't distribute it is because he sees himself as the primary owner and not a steward. Observation number three. The man's perspective on the future notice is profoundly arrogant because he has placed his trust in his possessions. See, one of the reasons why Jesus says it is so hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven is because the more you have, the more inclined you are to trust in it. Look at verse 19. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink and be merry. It is a simple fact that when you believe that life consists in the abundance of your possessions, the more possessions you have, the more secure you feel. Why does the man assume that he has many years? Why does he expect those years to be filled with relaxation, eating, drinking, being merry? In the parable, it is not God's word that, have led him, that has led him to those expectations, but his wealth. And it's a mirage. Look at verse 20. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required. Your soul isn't even yours. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Implication, they will not be yours. Jace read from the Old Testament earlier, Ecclesiastes 5.13, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner. That's the fool in the parable of the rich fool. So you want proof, Jesus says, that your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions, that you should and you would be very wise to take care and be on your guard against all covetousness and greed. Here's two reasons, death and judgment. You, it's not common, I know, and it's not popular in culture, but you 
think seriously about those two realities, you come to terms with the implications of those realities and it will debunk the false promises and hopes of materialistic greed. Here's Jesus' application, verse 21. So is the one, in other words, fool is the one, who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Well, that's the passage. Nice and easy, doesn't make us feel uncomfortable at all, does it? I want to finish by thinking about four implications for us in light of this series on stewardship and what we are to do with what God has given us. Number one, the water that we're all swimming in and the air that we're breathing, the culture that we're living in, looks at the, so you just need to be aware of it, the, the, it looks at the parable from verses 16 to 19. So, for example, listen to the parable, 16 to 19, the land of the rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years, relax, eat, drink, be merry. The culture looks at that and says, that's wisdom. That's life. That's security and hope and happiness. That should be the goal of your life, for goodness sake. And Jesus comes along in love and says, that's foolish. What Jesus calls wise, the culture calls foolish. And what the culture calls wise... Jesus calls foolish. And you can tell, actually, that the water, the air, the, the culture is deceiving you. Because it has to stop at verse 19. It does not have the resources. It is bankrupt to deal with the realities of verses 20 to 21. It cannot deal with the problem of death and judgment. Jesus can. And he comes along and says... Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness because your life doesn't actually consist in the abundance of your possessions. It's foolish, he says, friends, to lay up treasure for yourself and not be rich toward God. That is, not use your money and things to magnify God's name and advance his purposes in the world. Implication number two. The issue in the parable is not riches per se or planning. So when the parable says, or when Jesus says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, that's not a problem, that's God's provision. So in Deuteronomy 8.18, we're told that it's God who gives the ability to gain wealth. The Bible never says that the material world is bad, it says the opposite, the starting opening chapters of Genesis, that the world is good. The Bible never condemns somebody simply for being rich. Think about Abraham is commended as a man of great faith, and yet he's clearly financially flush. Job is righteous, and yet he is one of the richest people on the face of the earth. In Colossians 4.15, Paul greets Nympha. You see these little details uh, throughout the Bible, in the New Testament particularly. It's very interesting. Paul greets, end of Colossians, seemingly uh, insignificant, greets a lady named Nympha and the church that meets in her home. Presumably, her home was chosen because it was big enough to host the church, which implies she had some level of wealth and a nice home. 
See, Kermit Baptist Church wouldn't be where it is today were it not for God's provision through Christians, some of whom are wealthy. See, the reality is, greed can be a problem whether you have riches or rags. It can be present whether you are part of the haves or the have-nots. Of course you'll see it down at the you know, extravagance of Sanctuary Cove. But you'll also find it at a local sports bar in Logan, where people just sit and push pokey machine buttons day after day after day. The problem is not wealth and riches per se, but how the man thinks about them and hoards them and spends them only on himself. What's more, the, the parable's not saying that it's wrong to have a financial plan or even to save for the future. Listen to Proverbs 21.20, precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish person devours it. In other words, it's a sign of wisdom to have at least something stored away for later use and utter foolishness to devour everything you have all at once. It's not morally wrong to have food in the cupboard. You're not a self-centered materialist just for having a superannuation fund. You're not automatically greedy if you have a savings account. And if you're a farmer, it's not necessarily wrong to have barns. Notice carefully that even before the man tears down the barns, he had barns, plural. Randy Elkhorn points out, I think, I think it's helpful, that one of the challenges, I think, for us as stewards is just to appreciate that, that God doesn't actually give us a divine Excel spreadsheet that kind of outlines all the things that have been entrusted to us and what we should spend on different items. He doesn't give us anything like that. Instead, God has given us a good world. He's entrusted you with all of the resources that he's given you. He's given you his word as a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. His gospel, which, which turns our lives upside down and transforms our priorities. He's given you his people to help guide and counsel you. So side note, it's wise, I think, to talk to other people, at least at some stage, about how you spend your money, how you steward your possessions. If greed is this um, imperceptive, then it's wise to talk to other people about how you spend your money and possessions. You don't have to talk to everyone, obviously, but even in marriage counselling, we, we talk about that with, uh, with, with couples who are heading toward marriage. So God's given us all of those things and the responsibility and freedom to steward those things faithfully. I can't tell you how many pairs of shoes you need, how many T-shirts should be in your cupboard, how many bedrooms you need in your home, what model car you should drive, how many holidays you should go on each year, whether you should subscribe to Netflix, KO, Prime, Disney, none of them or all of them, whether you should have seasonal passes or tickets to the theme parks up here on the Gold Coast, what to spend on your kids' schooling, how many shares you should own, how many investment properties are wise, whether you should shop at Aldi or Coles or, or Woolies. What I can say is here's the lens this passage gives you to look through as you make those decisions. Not storing up treasures for yourselves, but being rich toward God. Implication number three. There are some levels of excess wealth that are actually incompatible with being a Christian and having gospel priorities. A clear implication of this parable is you can't be a Christian 
and go through life accumulating and hoarding more and more stuff to the neglect of others. I want you to listen to New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg. He writes this. It is important for professing Christians today to ask themselves how many unused surplus goods, property or investments they accumulate without any thought for the needy. If the parallels between us and the man in the parable become too close, presumably Jesus would say that their professions of faith are vacuous. He then goes on to point out this. Sooner or later, every economic system leads to certain people accumulating material possessions above and beyond what they can possibly need or even just use for themselves. Just side note, I moved here 18 months ago. We had a big cleanup uh, when we moved here. We had another cleanup uh, once we'd moved here and we had another cleanup since. He says, it's one thing to generate income which is then channeled into, income purpose, into kingdom purposes. Luke 16, Luke 19 are good examples of that. But he says, it's quite another thing to accumulate and hoard resources which are likely to be destroyed or disappear before being put to good use. In the latter case, by definition, such surplus prevents others from having a better opportunity for a reasonably decent standard of living. Such hoarding or accumulation is sin. And if left unchecked, it proves damning. A friend of mine is involved, um, or has been involved, in organising some of the, the larger Reformed Evangelical conferences over in the States. And over the years, he's gotten to know John Piper. I was over in the States a couple of years ago, and we were talking in his uh, hotel room. We were staying in the same hotel. And we're talking about a, a, an upcoming conference and who was speaking. I'll never forget it. He said to us, as we're sitting in his hotel room, he, he said... It might not have been these exact words, but something along the lines of, you know, John Piper's no joke. Um, too often we see uh, leading evangelical figures fail, fall publicly for all kinds of reasons. He said, well, you know, I've, I've been to John Piper's house. You know, you don't just read his books. I've not just read his books, you know, but, um, Desiring God, you know, the, the warnings against collecting seashells, um, don't waste your life. He said, I... I've been to his place. He, he's no joke. Here's what Piper says himself about the protections he puts in place to guard against greed and building bigger barns. He mentions three things. He says, first, I surrender all the copyrights and all the royalties of my books, and I have from the beginning. I surrender them to the Desiring God Foundation, knowing that I'd be a millionaire if I didn't. Listen to how countercultural this is. I am scared out of my wits at being a millionaire. He said, that's a weakness. Some people can handle it, but I don't have that gift. I chew a whole pack of gum immediately. The foundation has a board, he says, and it keeps $10,000 in the bank and has one meeting a year and we give away everything and we love it. Secondly, he says... I surrender all my honorariums. I didn't do this in the early days. If somebody gave me $100 for a wedding or a funeral, I'd take Noel out to dinner, but the church pays me enough to take Noel out to dinner every day. So one of the ways I protect myself, whether it's thousands of dollars because of some big speaking engagement or $100 because of a wedding or a funeral or something like that, is I write it off to the church. And thirdly, he says, Noel and I regularly go into our electronic giving and adjust it up, both in terms of the amount and in terms of the percentage, year in and year out. We haven't always done that, he says, but regularly we've done it. 
If you were to ask me, how much do you teach your children to give to the church? I would say, start with the Old Testament standard of the tithe and build on that. Frankly, I find it hard to comprehend that a child of the living God, after the glories of the cross, would, have, would regularly give to the church less than the standard of the Old Testament. I find that incomprehensible. There are some levels of excess wealth that are incompatible with being a Christian and having gospel priorities. That's the third implication. Fourthly and finally, I think the key for us to live greed-free lives, to be rich toward God, is to start by thinking and meditating upon how rich God has been toward us in Christ. See, if it's true that we only love because God first loved us, we will only be rich toward God to the level that we comprehend how much He has been rich toward us in Christ Jesus. Think about it. The man from the crowd asked Jesus, it's crazy, he asked Jesus to tell his brother to divide his inheritance with him, but he has no idea who it is that he's really talking to or the kind of inheritance Jesus can give him. He doesn't know that the one he calls teacher is God in the flesh who came into this world to save greedy sinners like him and us. See, the parable of the rich fool actually forms part of a section in Luke's gospel that's known as the travel narrative. So Luke, again and again, is just reminding us that Jesus isn't stating, he's actually going somewhere. He's traveling toward Jerusalem where he will die on a cross so that we can be forgiven and reconciled to the God who made us and who loves us and experience life. So for example, listen to Luke 9.51. Luke says, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Luke 13, 22, he went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Luke 18, 31, and taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man will be accomplished. And after flogging him, they will kill him and on the third day he will rise. Luke 19, 29, and when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem parable of the rich fool is told by one who left the glories of heaven, who though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that we by his poverty might become rich. See, the man thinks, if I could just get my hands on some of my brother's inheritance, I'll be, I'll be set because he thinks that his life consists in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus says, your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Life is found in me. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. For our sakes, he left the glory of heaven and endured the harshness and hardness of a fallen world. Luke 9, 58, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In Luke 4, when Satan comes and tempts Jesus to give in to covetousness and greed and the worship of things where we all fail, Jesus triumphs. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. You need to realize that the, power, the, the shadow of the cross hangs over Jesus. 
as he stands there in the crowd and tells the parable of the rich fool. He is literally in that moment, in the process of living the perfect life that we have not lived, a life free of covetousness and and greed and materialism. And then he goes, he keeps traveling toward Jerusalem, resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem, where he dies on a cross as a substitute, dying to bear the penalty that we deserve for all of our covetousness, all of our greed, all of the ways that we've laid up treasures for ourselves and not being rich toward God. But he doesn't stay dead. He he gets raised from the dead as Lord and King. And now he offers us an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for all of us who turn from our sin and trust in him. Friend, if you're here this morning, I want you to know you can leave here richer than you have ever been. Spiritual riches now, Forgiveness of your sins, reconciled to the God who made you and who loves you, adopted into his family if you'll turn from living life your own way and trust in Jesus. And the certainty of riches in the age to come where we'll enjoy life with God in a whole new world, free from greed and grief and suffering and death. Oh, if the man in the crowd only saw those realities. He wouldn't have come to Jesus and led with, tell my brother, teacher, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. He would have said, Lord, please give my mother, my brother, my sister, my father, my wife, my kids, my family, my friends, me, some of your inheritance. Here I am, Lord, and all that you've given me. Would you use it for your glory? and the good of others because my life doesn't consist anymore in the abundance of my possessions and my worth is not in what I own it's in your costly wounds of love at the cross let's pray Father, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus, who though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we by his poverty might become rich. Would you help us to guard against greed and covetousness, to not lay up treasure for ourselves, but to be rich toward you? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.